I'm Danny Duran, and this is the Infinite Jigsaw Podcast, a place for honest conversation, discovery, and a genuine incentive to improve sense-making. In today's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Father Jamie Franklin. Jamie is an Anglican priest and curate, and as well as ministering to his congregation, he also has a podcast called The Irreverend Podcast, where he talks candidly with clergy colleagues and other guests about the most pressing issues of our era. And I've found their conversations surprising, refreshing and very captivating. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Danny. It's great to be on. Great to have you here. Now, I'd like to talk with you about the current issues of our era. But first, something more about the, the title of this episode, which is The Wonder of Wonderful Faith. For some time, I've had this sense that there is kind of floating in the ether a resurgent curiosity and reverence for, for Christianity and not only for the tradition and, and the architecture of Christianity, but also the practice and for those who have faith. Now, personally, my my view on Christianity was was a little bit of a dim view for many years. I mean, prior to that, I was fairly apathetic. And then thanks to uh, Messrs Hitchens, Dawkins and, and Harris, I learned a kind of intellectual distaste, you might say. But since Jordan Peterson came into my life in 2016 and started a, a deeper conversation, my curiosity was was piqued. And by the time he came to do the Bible lecture series, I had kind of moved with him into a space of, of reverence. So firstly, do you have any sense, Jamie, for, for whatever reason, that there is a, a latent curiosity and maybe even a, a reverence for Christianity resurgent amongst some people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I absolutely do. And I think the journey that you've just described is um, really, really encapsulates um, something very significant about about the sort of trend in our in our culture. I mean, I, I'm not really sure how I would sort of I'm not sure how I would define it. But I think if you look at the, the new atheist movement as mm -hmm. an example, I mean, that that clearly touched on something yeah. that um, it became very 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 popular as a as a publishing phenomenon it was enormously successful i think you know particularly dawkins i, I think the god delusion sold i'm not sure how many copies but but certainly many millions of copies mm. and uh he was sort of um treated like a, a sort of rock star for quite a long time wasn't he but actually that whole way of that whole way of thinking about things it's like a it's like a wave that is sort of um you know it rose and it, it peaked and then it's and then it's sort of crashed on the on the beach and and it's it's sort of done with now it's very rare at least in my experience to come across people who talk or 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 even really think like that in that kind of you know that sort of doctrinaire materialism which mm -hmm. is it's very very dismissive and i was just funnily enough i was just talking to my wife about this about the um the li the limitations of um of, of modern science or at least science in terms of the way that um the the methodology is carried out so in the in the god delusion dawkins talks about the way that um at some point science will be able to explain literally everything and this this is, this is something that he says and it sounds ridiculous now but um this is this is something that um people like dawkins and, and before him um, very sort of eminent philosophers like Bertrand Russell, for example, really thought really thought was the case. And even even somebody like um, I think is he is either a biologist or a physicist, Peter Atkins, who is a very eminent mm. professor. I think he was at Oxford. Uh, I think he's an emer emeritus professor at Oxford. Now, even he would sort of say, you know, that science is omnipotent. Um, so it's this it's this. It's this very sort of strident um, overreaching on the part of this this type of atheism that sort of wants to wants to make claims for science which are which are far far beyond its remit and um you know I'm, i i won't go on too much about that now but it would be interesting if you'd like to talk a little bit about um science and and the the method methodological naturalism uh which which goes along with it because i think that that is significant here as well but anyway just to just to sort of move on from that um so you you have the you have the new atheists and they're you know, they're very sort of in many ways, it's sort of quite simplistic and almost like a kind of fundamentalist approach mm. to reality, which is like that there's only nature, there's only there's only material. Um, and and you might say sort of um, uh, phenomena that, that, that arise from the material world, like, for example, consciousness or, or whatever. And then, and then but that's it. There's nothing else. There's no there's 
there's no supernatural there's no mystery there's no there's no real sense that there is anything such as morality it's it's a you know it's a convention uh the aesthetic realm is not really real it's just um it's just about people's um subjective uh response to stimuli and it's probably got some kind of evolutionary uh explanation and so on and so forth and and so so it's a very sort of in a funny way, it sort of mirrors um, a religious fundamentalism, I think. And um, many people have made this observation about 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 Dawkins that he's a kind of evangelist, but he's you know he's an evangelist for for atheism rather than Christianity. Anyway, so I think that, that I think that that cultural moment is basically over. Um, a big part of it is um, I think Jordan Peterson, but. I think one of the interesting questions is to ask about Jordan Peterson, who I, who I very much like, by the way. I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson. I've listened to his stuff and I've read, I've read his, I've read his first book. I've got his second book and I've read some of it. Sorry, it's not. They're not first and second. They're second and third, aren't they? Um, yeah, maps of meaning is first. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but but was he was he the sort of cause of, of of that sort of resurgence of interest, or was he just was he just the right the right man in the right place at the right time type thing I, I think I think probably you know probably he had an influence but there was something going on in the culture as well I couldn't I couldn't really say what it is Danny um mm. interested I'd be interested to know if you if you if you have any views but I think if you think about religion the resurgence of religion in the public square in general I think that might have something to do with it so you know the September the 11th attacks for example that really put Islam and the whole question of the relationship between the secular world and um, the religious world, if you like, that that sort of brought that into um, into focus in a new way. But I wonder as well whether, you know, when what the culture sort of tried the new atheist thing and then uh, exactly like you're describing, Danny, they sort of found it wanting and thought, well, no, actually, this isn't this isn't a sufficient explanation for um, the experience of morality or the experience of beauty or or the wonder of, of um, existence, and actually we need we need to we need to think a bit more deeply about this and, and be a little bit more open about it. So yeah, I mean, so so those those are some thoughts. I mean, I don't know if you want to open any, open any of that stuff up, but I, I think just to conclude, um, I do I do sense a I do sense a real openness in the culture, um, you know, particularly to figures like Jordan Peterson, who in a way is, in a way is a kind of bridge figure between between the sciences and 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 the religious or let's say you know the supernatural uh, sphere there's that that sort of he's almost like a kind of gateway drug i think for many people but just just the the final thing to say here and i think it, in many ways is the most significant thing is i think over the last year and a half with the covid stuff i think that this is actually accelerating whatever it was in the culture um that openness i think that's that's accelerating that openness for many many people because questions of ultimate meaning um questions of existence of of, of life and death and of, of eternity and so on are being opened up um by by this um this uh, crisis and the response to it and i think as well it, it raises the question of evil i mean however you or the reality of evil let's say however you interpret the response to to covid and you know i'm very much of the opinion that it's been a, a massive overreaction and that there is there is a lot of um there is a lot of darkness going on behind the scenes in terms of people manipulating uh, the situation to their own ends however you whether you see the darkness there or whether you see the darkness in the virus or whether you see the darkness in a mixture of both it does it does raise the it does raise this the, the question of the specter of evil the reality of evil uh what what evil actually is and uh, whether there can be anything to you know when, whether we can do anything to protect ourselves well, against it i have protection. actually <clears throat> big pardon I have actually um, got a, f a couple of questions on on that topic for you. Yeah. Um, but if I can just stay where we are just for a moment, I, there's a few links there that you made that I haven't actually thought about, which I'm which I'm going to do some thinking about. What with uh, what happened 9/11 and COVID, and um, even say the rise of Islam, but the the, the, the omnipresence of, of, of Islam in our lives, which um, perhaps wasn't there before. But something that I, I had noticed, which, which you picked up on them, is the new atheists. And what they didn't have is the sensation of faith, of, of religious faith. And that, I think, is what has piqued many people's curiosity that, that were into the, the writings and um, the rhetoric of the new atheists. 
um, and found that that wasn't in there at all. And they wanted to find out more about that. And I've always felt it felt a kind of a bewildered awe for those who dedicate their life and importantly, their behaviours to religion. So I wanted to ask you quite a simple question. It sounds like a simple question, but I bet it's difficult to answer. Yeah. And that is, what does it feel like to have faith? Is it a cosy, high tog Egyptian cotton duvet or is it more like a like a damp sleeping bag with a dodgy zip? Um, well, no, I think that's a fantastic question. And um, yeah, it is it is quite a hard question to answer um, because um, I think you could approach it from from any from any angle um, or many angles, let's say. Um, let's let's think about how to answer this. I mean, I think one of the things that you could say about, you know, if you, if you like the kind of existential aspect of of um, of being a, a human being is that yeah. you have, you are your life is orientated towards some kind of end, and whether whether or not you realise that, it is the case. Everyone's trying to do something, even if even if you're just a very lazy person and you just like sleeping. That's still that's still a that's still um, a, a goal or a telos that you're that you're orientated towards and that your life is to some extent organized around. And I think that when it comes to so so in that sense, I don't think a, a sort of religious person is 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 sort of fundamentally different to a non-religious person. I think that the difference is, is that your your life is orientated or at least the goal of your life is to orientate yourself towards a supernatural end and that's that is that is different because it raises all sorts of questions and challenges and it involves all sorts of practices and things like that so to answer the final part of your question uh, with with the imagery that you used um it's what it's like to have faith is to be on a you know to use a to use a, a commonly used metaphor is to be on a kind of on a, on a journey with many perils and, and dangers but also with many wonders and, and joyful moments as well and all, all the great saints will will say this no nobody will say that it's just it's just relentless bliss and, and happiness and, and <laughs> I think the New Testament gives us every reason to to think to think um, that that would not be the case. It's a, it's a, it's a mixture of things. It's a, it's a mixture of dark nights of the soul, but then also with, um, you know, punctuated with uh, moments of, of um, connection with, with the Lord, uh, which, which bring peace and happiness and in, in, in many ways, ecstatic uh, experiences as well. Um, uh, and I suppose the sort of, the, the thing that, that makes the difference to me most of all, and Danny, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about sort of ecstatic experience and things like that. If you'd yeah. be interested, but but on a kind of every on a kind of everyday level, um, it's it's the knowledge of Christ living inside of me and giving me a sense of, of peace and of, of purpose and direction, I think, which is the thing that makes a difference. Before I was a Christian. I didn't have that sense. I mean, as I say, I, I do think that people are orientated towards a certain end. But when we don't have a, a sort of supernatural end, or at least this is how I experienced it, when we don't have a supernatural or a kind of ultimate end to orientate ourselves towards, we're orientating ourselves always towards different things. And we're always very confused about what we should be, what we should be um, pursuing. So, you know, I was very sort of when I was younger, I wanted to be a musician or a novelist. Um, you know, I wanted to have a successful relationship um you know i want i wanted I, I guess those were the main sort of things you know i guess i wanted to be i wanted to have friends and things like that so i was always kind of like frantically searching for something that would give me that sense of direction that would give me that sense of purpose and with it a sense of peace and and so on and i never i never found it um and i i guess what switched when i when i found the lord jesus and and um and was baptized and and became a disciple of christ i guess you know, that's the difference. It gave me that sense of clear, clear purpose to follow Christ, um, you know, a kind of uh, a, an orientation towards a yeah. super end, which which brought with it a sense of peace. And as I say, that doesn't that peace doesn't it's not there forever all the time. I mean, I do. I do think it will be there forever. But what I mean is it's not constant in the same way you do. You, do, you can lose your peace. Uh, you know, sometimes you go through a dark night of the soul for for, for reasons which are obscure but ultimately there is a sense in which in which christ is is with you living inside of you and helping you and um 
and you know and uh, uh, yeah and giving you a sense of purpose and so on and so forth uh, that was a bit rambly but uh, I, I don't know if that sort of helps at all it does really help and um, you saying that life is orientated toward towards an end is is both obvious but it's not something that we think about uh, well we don't really want to countenance ev- every day because otherwise it would be a fairly depressing time to um to think about your your finality and your, your end every day but I mean, how to cope with that finality is, is a question that, that religion tries to, to resolve or at least help with. Yeah. And that, I think that's that's a, a great link to make. Um, I'm, I'm not asking you to, to speak for other clergy, but how much of the role from the clergy do you think in general is spent on working out why the, the, the spiritual valve is closed in so many people and, and then how might it be released? How much of the role of being a vicar, do you mean? Yeah, uh, well, I, I mean, I think, Danny, lots of <laughs> you should spend a lot of time doing that kind of thing. I'm not sure how many vicars in the Church of England do. And, um, you know, if I were to be slightly controversial, I would say I think a lot of a lot of the church is actually is, is you know, that that valve is that valve is, is firmly is firmly done up and um, needs to be released. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think I think it should be it should be a, a central part of, of the job to, to help people to. To come to see, you know, that they are, they're not just animals, but that they are, you know, uh, created uh, in the image of God with a, with a, with a, with at least a potential orientation to a, a supernatural end. Um, I don't know how well I'm doing that or have done that, but I think it's, a, yeah, it's absolutely central. Yeah, for sure. I, I realise I'm asking a difficult question there, but I'm going to give you another, probably a difficult question before we move on to, um, the, the residents of modern evil in our lives and that is do you, do you think talking about jordan peterson um do you think there's a type of personality in your experience that makes a particularly enduring christian i'm thinking of the five traits of personality here um what do you think uh that's i mean that's a good question i've, I've never really thought about that so well tell me what the five traits of personality are and i'll tell you what i think right fair enough they are openness to experience yeah uh, they are neuroticism. <laughs> they are uh, agreeableness. Yeah. Uh, extroversion, and the last one is conscientiousness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing is, Dan, is that I'm a I'm a Catholic Christian, so I'm an Anglican, so I'm an Anglo-Catholic, right? So what it means to be a Catholic Christian is that you you take the universality of the church really, really seriously. And you believe that God manifests himself in um, in in Christians throughout all ages at all times. And so I think that um, I think that uh, God uses personalities in in different ways. You know, it's 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 true, isn't it, that, that whatever personality trait you have can be it can be something which can be used for good or it can be used for evil. Mm. So, for example, I know that by by nature, I um uh stubborn and i you know i'm a i'm somebody who's not afraid to contradict other people if i think they're wrong or if i think what they're doing is wrong uh and you know if i make my mind up to do something or not do it then then that's the way it will remain that's um that can be something which is which is a very positive trait in in the life of faith because it means that you will stand um as a witness um you know, uh, to 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 the truth. If if you if you orientate yourself to the truth, but if you orientate yourself to evil and you have that you have that personality trait, then that's you know that's really bad. You know, because you won't you yes. won't stop in your kind of relentless pursuit of evil. So, and I don't I don't necessarily think that. And again, you know, with say the most sort of negative sounding of those five neuroticism. I mean, I I think you'd find that probably most of the great saints in history have been neurotic you know um have been sort of um you know uh relentlessly focused on on particular things which has actually been the thing that's made them great for whatever reason um you know like for example i don't know someone like um someone like francis of assisi was so scrupulously um um obsessed with the notion of, of of voluntary poverty that the things he did um in his life would shock us and seem um seem crazy but but you know the fact is is that that was a particular grace that was given to him so yeah yeah i don't know i'd have to i'd have i'd have to have a think um i'd have to have a think about that danny that's fair enough 
the answer is probably that God God can and, and, and does use all sorts of different types of personalities for sure. Well, I, I do want to move on now to uh, recognising modern evil. But as you mentioned, saints, I just wondered, and I have a naive question, do saints represent the identification of goodness? Is that what they're, is that the representation of a saint? Well, um, I guess, I mean, saints are different in different forms of Christianity. Um, in, in the Anglican church, we don't, we don't actually sort of recognize, well, we do recognize saints, but we don't, we don't sort of make new saints, if that makes right. sense. I suppose, yes. I suppose, um, saints are people who have had a particularly, um, powerful, they have made a particularly powerful witness to God's grace and to Christ in the world in their own particular way. So um, in the in the Roman Catholic Church, the Romans believe that saints are those who go directly to heaven whilst everyone else um, ends up in purgatory to be purged of their sins. Uh, That's not that's not part of Anglican doctrine, but that's that's how the Roman Catholics um, understand it. So, yeah, so saints are people who have had a particular grace on their life to 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 um to witness in a particular way many of them are martyrs many of them died uh for for the faith um um but again they all they all witness in in different ways some are great scholars some are people who you know some are some are people who renounced um great wealth uh, some are people who worked with um with the poor some are people who made great um you know, they were, were uh, brave and um, and courageous in in the face of persecution and were martyred. So it's a it's a whole it's a whole different. I mean, it's literally a litany of of different right. witness to to the reality of God's grace in the world in different ways. Thank you for that. I mean, yeah, some of my questions are going to be a little bit general and, and naive, and there'll be a fair bit of um, rev splaining <laughs> if you okay. if you want to call it that. But but I'd like to <clears throat> excuse me. I'd like to move on and ask you about something that's been playing on my mind, and that's the recognition of of modern evil. Now, the Bible teaches us, um, if I want to interpret it correctly, that Satan can take many forms. Yeah. Um, so the question for those who are now unaccustomed to the, the teachings of Christ in the Bible is, is one of recognising the characteristics of, of evil. And some of the questions one could ask themselves might be, are there forces which are clearly conspiring to divide us? And if so, are these forces gaining in strength? And and then are the persons who through these forces operate even a, even aware of this dark intention? I mean, the phrase, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, comes yeah. to mind here. And I'm, I'm pointing a finger at big social media and, and big tech, which is a corollary that makes sense to my mind. So, Jamie, in your view... These technocrats and, and their clear intention for, for spiritual control over us, do they really know not what it is they do or are they somehow possessed by dark intentions? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a really insightful question, Danny. I mean, um, so I think the first the first thing to say is that um, I believe in the reality of the supernatural world and um the the reality of god but also the reality of angels and demons and, and spiritual beings of that that sort as well and not, not only that but they have an effect they have a great effect and influence in our in our um in our world so i mean one of the key scriptures here i've just got my um my bible open here so uh saint paul in uh, the letter to the ephesians for example he says if i can just if i can just find it here we do not contend against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So what what St. Paul is saying there is that um, our, our battle as, as Christians is, is not against other human beings, but it's against the powers, the spiritual powers that are animating the the evil and the darkness that goes on in the world um so it's not it's not a fight against people it's a, it's a fight against those powers um so the enemy is you know the enemy is satan and, and demons um now i think the the where it's where it's a little bit harder to say exactly is to what extent people who are actually doing evil things are aware of the fact that they are being influenced by dark powers or whether they're just sort of naively doing it i think in the secular world that we live in the vast majority of people don't believe in the reality of of, of, of demons. Well, I, I assume so anyway. I don't know about the vast majority, but I would guess the majority of people don't believe in mm. the 
the reality of demons and and dark powers. So I think the majority of people don't know that when or if or or even how they they could be influenced by these dark powers. Um, but nevertheless, I, I think I think you know people are people are influenced by dark powers all the time. I I I think my sort of assumption from the New Testament is that these these beings, you know, angels and demons and so forth, that they're they're ubiquitous, they're everywhere, and they're they're having an influence on people all the time. So I think the majority of people don't don't know, and I think there's probably the case. I say you know this is where it's hard, isn't it? I think it's probably the case for these these technocrats and and politicians. Uh, as well i think they probably don't realize that what they probably not only do they not realize what they're doing is is often evil but they they actually can you know they're convinced that what they're doing is actually good Mm. which is often is often the case with with um you know throughout history with 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 dictators and and you know with people say that hitler thought that you know he genuinely thought that he was doing the, the right thing for the german people and you know i'm not i'm not sure whether that's true or not but it but it's it's something that's often said about about um about dictators and totalitarian um leaders that they they often sort of convince themselves that they are that they're doing the right thing so they they may be sort of deceived by by dark forces now the reason i'm sort of hesitant about this danny is because i also think that it's not something you can know about really but it does seem to be the case that um there are organizations uh, secret organizations like um like freemasons and and others which are you know even more obscure because in many ways freemasonry is is it's very obvious that it exists and and who who is a freemason and so on but but there are there are organizations which do appear to me to have a kind of um a dark religious power that animates uh, that animates them and it wouldn't surprise me at all if there are lots of occultists and people who who do you know do literally um, worship satan uh who are who are very influential and, and powerful in our world um now and, and that's kind of you know in terms of the actual empirical reality of that i don't i don't know i don't know who they are i don't know for a fact that they're doing it but i i think it's probably i think it's probably the case um based on stuff i've read and 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 people i've talked to but also based on the kind of um you know the the sort of assumption that that satan wants to you know he wants to take the place of god he wants to be worshipped in the place of god and even in the secular west where he's done a a really good job of convincing people that he doesn't exist he nevertheless because of his arrogance and his pride he wants he still wants people to worship him so the idea of a kind of you know a secretive cabal of of incredibly powerful people who are who are literally worshipping worshipping the the dark lord i mean I, I can imagine that that's probably true even though it's probably sounds crazy to you danny but i i don't know how, how it sounds no, it doesn't yeah. sound crazy yeah yeah unfortunately it doesn't sound crazy at all yeah. um i also wanted to ask you about good and evil as as kind of unequal forces now i've already mentioned the phrase forgive them father for they know not what they do um, which fell from Jesus's lips. And and in this phrase, I think he, he lays out, to my mind, he lays out a celestial hierarchy with good, presumably coming before evil. You know, good is the ultimate dominant force. Because if it were otherwise and, and evil was equal to goodness, then how could Jesus know that what they were doing, in inverted commas, wasn't precisely what they wanted to do, you know, wholeheartedly and, and knowingly? To my mind, in this proclamation, we hear Jesus kind of dichotomize good and evil and indicate his bias toward good as if evil is not an opposition of equal force. Am I interpreting this at all correctly or or not? Yeah, I mean, I think you're basic. I'd have to I'd have to think more about the um, the specific observation about that, that utterance of Christ. I mean, I think it's a really interesting um, uh, observation that you've made. Uh, about that and I, i'd have to think a little bit more about that but I, I think what i can say certainly is that the basic um observation that you're making is absolutely 100 percent correct and i i think you probably are right um but about the the, the the utterance of christ on the cross um but let me let me sort of articulate um mm. something first and then maybe come back to that i think the basic kind of ontological observation is that in a christian worldview um the the goodness is absolutely primary it precedes evil there there is no 
in in God who is who is infinite. There is no evil. There is no darkness or anything. Um, and God is the God is the kind of brute fact of of reality. Um, so so goodness comes first. And when God created the universe or the cosmos, um, when God created the heavens and the earth, it was it was it was uh, aboriginally good. So there was nothing there was nothing wrong with it um, at all. And it was a place of harmony and, and peace and and abundance and um, and uh, a sort of um, entirely harmonious union between between God and 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 man. So so that was the state originally of creation. And then, of course, what the what the Genesis story tells us is that into the garden came a serpent and that serpent introduced evil rebellion against God, pride um the the notion of being independent from God to humanity and that this um this led to sin coming into the world through Adam and then the world itself being um you know ruptured in this kind of cosmic sense which we call the fall and all, all of the kind of negative things coming in. Now of course that that raises the other question of where the where the serpent came from but you know um there is also the that's that story that story kind of um is 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 if you like a kind of echo of, of a of a more if, if, of an even more primal story of the the battle between good and evil which actually happened at some point in some mysterious way in heaven itself between between god and and satan who was an who was an angel of light originally and then became yeah. uh became uh you know rose in rebellion against against the most high god um and that's um i don't know whether you've ever read um Paradise Lost by John Milton, but John Milton imagines that in a very sort of vivid and, and um, incredible way. But it is, it is. I think it's 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 clearly implied in scripture as well, though there aren't loads of details. But anyway, the point is, is that evil is evil is not primary to creation. It's a kind of intruder. It's parasitic upon creation, and um, we understand this existentially as well because. Um, we can see that um, evil is a, a twisting of things which are which are fundamentally good. So, um, you know, you could you could you could say this about any evil action. But if you take something like the sexual instinct, uh, it's it's quite it's quite obvious that that um, that sex and, and, and reproduction are good things. They are natural. They are they're pleasurable. They are um, they're a gift of, of God's grace to us. But it's also true that those things can be twisted used in a way which, which are wrong and which are perverse and e- even though we might you know we might have disagreements about what actually constitutes perversion nevertheless that that's not really the point the point is that um there is such a thing as a perversion of the sexual instinct and that and that could go for everything food you know food is good but you can you can starve yourself to death or you can you can um you can eat yourself to death or you can eat yourself into into um yeah Orbit obesity or whatever it is you know so 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 evil even we even get this sort of existentially like evil is always parasitic upon some kind of primary instinct which is which is in itself good and could be channeled in a in a healthy way so i think that i think that um if you come back to the thing about christ on the cross well if it was true that the soldiers didn't understand what they were doing really what they were doing is they were trying to pursue what you know justice or or truthfulness or fairness or whatever and they had just you know their their view of what these things were had become warped through through goodness knows what through fear through you know un, un, blind obedience who knows but you know it might be the, the case that you could fit that into that framework by saying that they were actually pursuing something good but that 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 they were pursuing had become had become perverted or twisted in some way i don't know if, i don't know if that any of that makes sense yeah it it, it does make sense and you mentioned Christ on the cross, and I do want to come on to sacrifice. I've got a, I've got a question or two for you there, but I, I just for one moment just want to stick on. I don't know if you, we could call it evil, but negative powers and negative forces. Yeah. And I've been thinking about um, celestial competition, if there is such a thing. Yeah. It's a bit of a tricky one to articulate, but I'd really like your thoughts if I can do a decent job here. Um, and that is if if thinking is brought about by reality which i i might describe as is like the realness of, of you being a, a sentient presence in the world you know what you see in the mirror proves you are real and then reality is presided over and engineered by by a benevolent celestial being god then mine and your thoughts everyone's thoughts are observed by this being hence we're, we're not 
We're not alone in our own minds. We have company. But if we perceive this companion to be God, then I wonder why so many of our thoughts are so dark. You know, is God the singular companion or, or does God have competition to the axis of our thoughts and therefore our actions? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think I think the, I think the latter, you know, the, the I, and again, it's, it's very hard to say, isn't it? But we, yes. we, don't, we don't really know where thoughts come from. Um, we don't understand consciousness. We don't understand. I mean, when I say we don't understand it, I mean, we, we can't give a kind of exhaustive scientific rationale for it, for consciousness, for, for, for how we exercise our reason, for how we, how we exercise the will, etc., etc. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's absolutely clear that um, that we are we are in the. We are in the in the in the midst of a of a spiritual battle between good and evil, and and that sort of you know that cartoonish picture of an angel sitting on one shoulder and the devil sitting on the other shoulder uh, that that nevertheless is indicative of a spiritual reality, and I, I think it's 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 plainly I mean we off off um, off uh, the the record we were talking about um, the Dellingpole interview with Jeremy. Mm. And he was saying that um, sometimes you just have a thought pop into your mind and you think, well, where did that come from? That has nothing to do with anything I desire or anything I've ever thought before. And, um, you know, this is a people commonly say this thing. I mean, this has never happened to me, but I've heard many, many times people saying I've just been standing on the edge of a a cliff or in the top of a house or a building or something. And it's just popped into my head that I should just jump off, just jump off. Why, Why shouldn't I just jump off? And then I thought, well, where did that come from? You know, I don't want to jump off this cliff. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's probably it's probably a dark spirit that's that's trying to get you to kill yourself. You know, um, but but that that belies the fact that they that these these dark powers are, are, are whispering ideas into our minds all the time, um, tempting us to sin, tempting us to despair, um, basically basically trying to drag us down into some kind of negativity. Uh, because that's the that's their purpose for our existence that's what they want they want us to they want to destroy us and ultimately they want to kill us and um and and the way that they can do that best is by um you know getting us to be mired in sin and addiction and self-loathing and suicidal thoughts and so on and so forth so so yeah i absolutely think you know danny if you're interested or if any of the listeners are interested um one of the best books on spiritual warfare is um c.s lewis book uh, the screw tape letters where he imagines a series of letters that are written by a, a senior devil to a junior devil. Right. And the senior devil is giving the junior devil, um, you know, um, instructions as to how to um, to tempt and to deceive the man that this particular junior devil has, is assigned to. It's a very, very clever book. It's a specific, really, uh, really, 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 really entertaining. But it does give you a real insight into the, the subtle um, yet brilliant nature of, of the dark powers as they attempt to to deceive us yeah that's really interesting i'll definitely look that up um just before we move on to sacrifice just what you what you were saying then do you think that these perhaps these dark forces um that they they want to engage us in a dialogue and, and by that i mean is a tactic to is a good tactic to ignore them or must you must you actively say no which is also you know because you're engaging with them in dialogue yeah no i mean i don't i i i don't know that they want to engage us in dialogue i've never i, I mean i'm not hugely experienced in this but i i um mm. i don't i don't know of anyone who said that they've sort of engaged in dialogue with these with these dark powers i think what they do rather is they sort of suggest things to us mm. In the secular in the secular world that we live in, they don't want to make their existence known because they because if we were if we were aware of the fact that they existed, we would resist them more. So they they've tripped us into thinking they don't exist, and they they suggest things to us in order to um, to get us to do what they want. But I don't think they want to engage in dialogue. But what I would say is that if anyone is, I think well, how how do I want to say this? If anyone is is um, is aware of the, the 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 spiritual reality of these dark powers. Um, the best the best thing to do is to speak. Well, ultimately, is to speak the name of, of Jesus Christ um, because that's the most powerful name that will that will repel um, that will repel dark spirits and and evil evil thoughts. Um, just literally to say the name of, of Jesus. But I I find also crossing myself is is a very powerful gesture as well. Um, uh, but 
you know you can do other things as well like wearing a cross demon uh, demons and dark powers don't like crosses uh, they don't like blessed objects like um like icons they certainly don't like churches and 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 the sacrament of of Christ's body and blood um and they don't like scripture either so um you know reading reading scripture speaking scripture out loud speaking speaking the psalms out loud praying the psalms all of these things have um technically what is called apotropaic power which is the power to to uh, repel dark spirits mm-hmm. and as I, as i say danny we've lost we've lost the capacity to think about things in this way now yes. uh, we've become so secularized but but nevertheless this is uh, if if one acknowledges the reality of these dark powers, this is the best way of of, um, of dealing with them for sure. Yeah, thank you. That's that's good that there's some practical things to do. And um, I want to move on to sacrifice and um, lo- and not lost knowledge, which is embroiled in this. Um, there's obviously great emphasis on sacrifice in the story of Christ. I mean, Christ made the old ultimate sacrifice for his beliefs when he refused to go along with what was the mob orthodoxy of, of that time and place. And he was charged with blasphemy and he was put to death on the cross. But has that lesson of sacrifice, do you think, somehow been extracted from the modern mind? Have the muscles of sacrifice atrophied along with what you might say is the atrophy of of the church institutions? It it seems that we no longer have any reflex for for true heroism in in its more wholesome form, you know. Many of the world's contemporary heroes, in inverted commas, are in fact false idols. So I wonder how, how we are to rediscover Jesus's lesson of heroism and sacrifice without actually entering into the territory of hot war, where the archetype of the self-sacrificing hero is sure to be rediscovered. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. So, I mean, from your perspective, is I'm just I'm just interested to dig a little bit further into it. So we've lost... We've lost the kind of the sense of heroic self-sacrifice in in our in our modern world. Um, and, and I guess you're asking why that is. So, I mean, just on a on a on a sort of basic level, is it because now we live in a we live in a world which is very, very materially comfortable and um, people have sort of, you know, they've they've lost the capacity to even think of a, a, of a life of renunciation as a as a viable option. You know, it's kind of like wealth. And material comfort kind of breeds um, breeds a need for itself, if that makes sense. You know, um, yes. More, the more you have of it, the more it sort of comforts you, and then the more you think you you absolutely need it. Um, so I think that could be I think that could be something to do with it. Um, the churches, the Church of England and many other churches as well, have become very very institutionalised. Um, so it is hard to breed genuine um, saints. Uh, you know, in in the church, because uh, we have we do have so much material comfort, and in many ways the structures that we have are the same as in any other job. You know, we have pensions and uh, we're technically a stipend, but it's it's a salary. You know, that's mm. it's money that goes in your bank. So it's so it's 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 very similar to just having a normal job. So I think I think the I think the institutionalized nature of the church is is part of the problem as well. Um, I think the the exception to this is when you look at um, when you look at monastic um, vocations, which do still exist, even, you know, even in the Anglican Church. I mean, there's a monastery that I go to for, for retreat, or at least I used to when I was allowed to uh, leave my house. Um, uh, so there are there are there are monks and nuns. There's actually a, monas- um, a, um, a nunnery very near where I live, uh, Anglican, Anglican, um, Anglican monastery. Um you know, they, and these people are these people are seeking to live a more radical life by renouncing, you know, by renouncing the outside world in in in, in quite a radical way. Um, so, but that's you know that's no different to what how the monastic movement really kicked off in the fourth century. Um, you know, when when the uh, the Roman Empire became Christianized, it's always been a way of it's always been a way of trying to um, renounce some some movement within culture which is felt. Mm-hmm. Be, to be um, detrimental to to the possibility of genuine um, sainthood and and uh, a life which is genuinely patterned after after Christ's sacrifice. So I think I think there's there's a monastic impulse there, and the the question of how to follow it as a normal person is is difficult. But at the very least, what what the what the monks and nuns do for us is they pattern 
or they set a pattern of, of, of more radical renunciation, which can at the very least kind of inspire us to, to greater levels of to greater levels of, of obedience to Christ. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it is it's a tricky one to answer, Danny, because I think it is extremely hard to live a radical life um, in this culture. It's just it's just very, very hard. You know, that's the nature of, of living in a, in a wealthy, secular um, uh, world. So I don't know. What, what do you what do you think about that, Danny? Well, I wanted to ask you if, if you think it's important to distinguish when thinking about the self-sacrificing hero and that, and that archetype, the, the way the Western mind looks at it against the way some cultures say in the East and some cultures that have, have been used to um, a, a more war-torn um, recent history. You know, I, I think that you're absolutely right in your sense that our material wealth um, has been very cosy for, for a long time. And I was speaking to our friend Carbon Mike um, just the other day about how you, you have generations of people now that only have the stories of heroism from their great grandfathers. Um, and that is from the World War One and World War Two and perhaps their brothers from um, from the Falklands, and the first Gulf War. And then the rest of the wars, the heroism hasn't been allowed to be recognised and it is more shameful. So we've completely flipped our interpretation uh, of heroism and how we imbibe these stories that are localised in our culture. And I don't yeah. think, I'm not, I'm not sure, I don't come from these clearly, but I'm not sure if that's the case for them. So you just, th- I don't want to generalise either. So you do, th- do you think it's important to distinguish the um, different cultures from each other, the, the way we approach this? Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I'd be, um, I'd be reticent to say too much about um, Eastern cultures. Me too, yeah. It's not an area I know very much about. I mean, what you're saying about heroism there, I think I get I think I get what you're saying. Um, there is something I think particularly about the notion of courage and, and, and risk, which obviously I mean, obviously, with the with the stuff, the COVID stuff has become more manifest. But there seems to be a sort of glorification in our culture of, of, um, of timidity and, and, and cowardice mm. and, and um, you know, sort of quite selfishly keeping yourself safe at the uh, um, you know, at the risk of at the risk to yourself of doing something, doing something heroic. So I, I think we've definitely lost the notion of, of heroism. I think the the different the thing that shaped our culture, I think in particular, is the notion that heroism is not just about conquering and and killing. It's about um, or successfully doing those things. It's about self sacrifice. Yes. And, and you know, our which is obviously to do with with Christ and Christianity and. I think when we when we think about the first and second world war, for example, um, the imagery we and the and the language and so on that we that we invoke is always is always that of self sacrifice. Yes. You know, always of the fact that these people laid down their lives for a good end, but it's the fact that they laid down their lives which is celebrated. Whereas in other in other cultures, like in heroic cultures, um, you know the uh, you know the Greco-Roman cultures and so on. They wouldn't set they wouldn't celebrate self-sacrifice. They would celebrate you know killing um, loads of people and and like like Achilles you know being a being a great warrior and so on and so forth. So there's a definite there's a definite difference there. But I, I would say now we as a culture we've very much moved into the the realm of of um, of cowardice and 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 selfishness, uh, which is which is a very it's a very um, yeah, it's yeah. a very sad thing, really. We do, we do need, we do need heroic figures to to lead the way for sure. Actually, you've you've mentioned two words in the last five minutes that I I kind of had on my mind. One being patterns, and the other being timidity. And I've, there's two other things that I'd like to talk to you about. And one is censorship. Censorship is a hugely like imperative topic at the moment, and I've been thinking about a lot about this call for big social media to be uh, legally liable for the speech that's posted on on their platforms. But I do wonder if those who desire this have considered that by making these companies liable, you're kind of forcing them to be the um, the adjudicators of what's OK to say and what's not OK to say. Yeah. Uh, and they will have to inevitably like lop off huge parts of the online conversation just in order to avoid prosecution. And and also, this is giving the technocrats a further indication that they are, in fact, the lord and masters of public discourse and therefore public opinion. So that's the censorship dilemma of, of our era, as I see it. But after talking with um, Carbon Mike about uh, human beings um, being creatures of pattern 
and how we can identify those patterns in history, which could then help us understand the decision making sequences of the current day. I thought I'd ask you to reflect from the church's history, if, if you could. Now, I'm pretty sure that the church has, has a deep historical knowledge of the impact of censorship. So I wondered if you could bring to mind any historical instances of the church being censored by another authority or indeed seeking to censor. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think that there are both, uh, Danny. And um, yeah, I mean, I, it's a bit tricky because the, the, the Enlightenment myth around, um, you know, Galileo and so, so forth, it is um, it is largely made up, but but there, there nevertheless is some truth in it. Um, and similarly, with the Spanish Inquisition, I mean, it's it's a it's a genuine question as to how much of it was actually ecclesiastical and how much of it was political. I mean, a lot of it was um, was motivated or was carried out by um, I think it was I think it was the I think it was the Spanish Empire and the um, was it Emperor Frederick and his his wife. Uh, I can't quite remember exactly the details, but but essentially there is there is a, I think there is a there is obviously some truth in the fact that the um, that the Catholic Church at the time was engaged in inquisitions and censorship and so on. It's the the reason I hesitate about that is because it's a much it's a much more complicated story than yeah. the um, than the Enlightenment um, myth about it or the legend about it makes out. You know this kind of this heroic band of of um, of completely um, completely neutral and courageous uh, early modern scientists. You know against these wicked. Uh, uh, torturous dogmatists. I mean, as I say, uh, there is some truth in it. So, so there would there would be um, there, there there would be uh, instances of censorship there. Um, but as I say, it's, it's quite a complicated historical issue. And on the flip side, I mean, the the church has been. We don't usually use the word censorship to describe this, but the church, all the way through its existence, has been censored, if you like, because. Uh, because people don't want um, Christians going around preaching the gospel and other people becoming Christians. Mm. And so it goes back to the earliest days of, I mean, you could say, you could say in a sense that Christ himself was, was censored, but, but certainly um, in the book of Acts, you know, from the, from the very beginning of, of the, the, the church, um, the apostles were told not to preach in the name of Jesus and they were beaten and they were imprisoned and they were killed and so on and so forth. And, and that story has continued ever since. Um, with with countless i mean uh, i think it was tertullian who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church you know the way that the church started to grow so much in the first place is because people were being martyred and, and killed for their faith and it was such a powerful witness um to bring it right up to date um in the in the modern world we are we are seeing we are seeing a, a, a complicated situation around censorship and it it's it's more about as you rightly say it's about people taking control of the narrative through social media mm. so it's something which is it's something which is hard to it's hard to understand um how you can how you can get around this it's a complicated political issue but I, but from the from the christian perspective of course the worry is is that um the the christian message both in terms of the actual proclamation of the gospel, you know, to do with Jesus Christ uh, dying for your sins and so on, that that will be censored. But also the 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 ethical messages that will be put out into the culture will be anti-Christian or, or or post-Christian as well. So I think that from a from a Christian perspective, this whole thing around social media is is deeply disturbing, and um, it's not something. The other aspect of this is. It's not something you can you can hide from. We need to engage in this question because we can't just say, well, we're not going to use this media or we're going to completely back away from it um, because people are influenced by it. Billions of people are influenced by it now. So it is it is the new form of communication in the same way as, you know, in the in the um, in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. It was it was the it was the printing press um and and the the printed the printed uh the printed uh, medium so so in every age the church has had to adapt to new technology and it's you know this is this is um it's in many ways more complicated but it's it's still a similar situation i think yeah i share your your thoughts on that and i yeah i'm i'm yet to get my head around that but if i can bring us e even further into the current day i'd like to speak to you about the pandemic um and you mentioned that word timidity now i think there are kind of two pandemics 
uh, at work in the world. One is the virus that emanated from the Wuhan province of China. And the other one is a pandemic of timidity, which is being timid before the state's growing authoritarian ambitions, you might call them. So there are many people, aren't there, at the moment that are just completely recumbent before the state. They'll go along with anything as long as there is a loose promise of a return to normality, when it's pretty clear to see that going back to this kind of bygone era of cool political apathy, which underscored the 90s when I grew up, is just it's not going to happen. So I wondered if you had any thoughts on how the pandemic has it's seemingly um, like fostered or even sped up this um, supine disposition of the masses to the state authority. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that the younger generations have been primed for it. I mean, just speaking about in our country um, through the education system, which, as far as I can tell, is is pretty um, pretty bad at teaching um, teaching kids to think about things critically mm. or to think about things analytically. Um, so you've got a, you've got a whole generation of, of children and young adults who are they're they're largely incapable of of um of critical independent thought and i think that that is that is a that is a really significant component of this um but then as you rightly say um the other the other component of it is is fear and the way that fear has been spread uh, throughout the population and i do think of this as, as fundamentally religious in nature um because basically it's um and i've said this in many ways on my own podcast this is a kind of this is a sort of alternative gospel or, or a, a false yeah. gospel, uh, because, because what we've been told is that there is an ultimate enemy, which is this virus, um, which will which will kill us all. Um, and that uh, the way that we can save ourselves is by engaging in these pseudo religious practices, you know, around, uh, you know, taboos around the body, you know, not not touching other people, not going near other people, um, religious, religious uh, coverings. Uh, uh, face masks uh, and and so on and um and um, um sacrifice self-sacrifice you know lockdowns you know staying at home sacrifice yourself for for everyone else um and then then the vaccines have obviously taken on a kind of um, messianic quality which has actually been depicted quite in quite a literal way uh, in many many publications you know vaccines yeah. stand kind of long long uh, dark tunnels in the light as though they're the resurrected Christ and so on. So and then the message is, of course, that if we do all these things and then we wait for the vaccine, uh, then we will um, be delivered from from the ultimate enemy. And the the technocrats are the high priests of this religion. They they say things which are blatantly not true and there's no evidence for them. And yet everyone believes them because they are the unquestionable authority so it's, it's ironic isn't it we go back to the conversation about the sort of medieval spanish inquisition and the way that the the catholic church was held to be this sort of unquestionable dogmatic authority we think we're so superior as as modern people but we've we've got exactly the same situation with these with these technocrats who you know they weren't they weren't elected they're just there because they have ostensibly some kind of scientific qualification and now they're dominating every area of our lives i mean i can't think of anything more um more you know fundamentalist and um and religious really when when you when you think about it in those ways so i think it's a kind of pseudo-religious uh framework and that and the the thing that's sort of so shocking about it is that so many hundreds of millions of people if not billions have basically been co-opted into what is essentially a kind of dogmatic a dogmatist fundamentalist uh cult um and uh and it's it's it, yeah it's extremely worrying because Apart from anything else, when people do get into that mindset, which is which is totally irrational and um, it's driven by these kind of fundamental desires to keep yourself safe and to 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 um, protect yourself from an invisible enemy and to appear um, righteous, um, good in the eyes of the world. When people start to be motivated in that way, it's very primal and it can turn into something violent and very dark and ugly. Um, and yeah, so I, I think I think. Yeah, all of those things are part of it, really. It's very dark and very ugly. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Um, could you explain to us uh, just just lastly about this list? I'm calling it the list of dissenters that you have organised. Is it 1,300 ministers to sign now? Yeah, it's over over 1,500 now. I mean, we've 1, closed 
we we closed the list, but yeah, it was over. It was over fifteen hundred. So yes, yeah, so it was a it was a letter we wrote to the government, um, or to the prime minister specifically, but it was sent to all MPs as well about um, vaccine passports. And uh, we basically opened this letter for Christian leaders, uh, um, so in churches or Christian organisations to to sign. So um, obviously the concern is that vaccine passports, well, they don't make any sense. Why do you even need them if the vaccine works? Uh, you know, this is going to create, at the very least, it's going to create a two-tier society, but it also potentially opens the way for a kind of biosecurity state, um, you know, night, nightmarish dystopian society uh, in which the government have control over our over our bodies. And, and there's, there's literally no limit to that. Um, you know, it's not just about taking loads of vaccines it could be about um, organ uh, donation it could be about um, limiting the amount of children uh, couples could have and monitoring women's um, ovulation it could be it could be absolutely anything so this is this is extremely worrying and then of course at the kind of um, basic level as as church leaders that there's no way uh, we're going to um, turn people away from our churches and christian mm-hmm organizations like drug rehab centers for example um because they haven't had a vaccine it's absolutely outrageous and there's no way there's no way that's going to happen so that's basically what the uh, the letter said and yeah we had over yeah eventually over 1500 uh signatures and it was picked up um i think it was we had some pr people helping us but also steve baker was very supportive and he got his pr person to push it as well so we did we did end up in you know in the, in the national press the bbc telegraph um the guardian a spectator and we did a couple of um radio appearances here and there as well so yeah so that that was uh yeah so that was a couple of weeks ago now but it was good yeah well very well done i mean i think it's really good timing as well the whole thing with this podcast the wonder of wonderful faith and my sense that there's a an emerging reverence and, and curiosity and then what i want and i think what other people with this sense would want is to see strong religious leadership you know if you have a curiosity um, about something <clears throat> then you want you want to see it managed um, really really well and, and I, I think that you're displaying that and and the rest of these um, 1499 ministers I think it's really excellent um, I just wanted to ask you also talking about dissenters and uh, authoritarianism and it's, it's quite a disturbing question to ask but I'll ask it anyway how many of us do you think will end up in prison? I mean, that's what happens in the end game, isn't it? When authoritarianism goes unchecked, the dissenters get locked up, do they not? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I mean, it's not, it's not an easy question to answer. I think the, the, the hope is, Danny, that this is our, our parliamentary system will, um, kick into action when this thing starts you know, when it when it transgresses a certain boundary. And I wonder whether vaccine passports might be that boundary. Um, you, you know, with our letter, we did get a lot of support from MPs who who emailed back. And I think there is I don't know because I kind of lost faith in the whole system. But I think there's at least a chance that Parliament will reject vaccine passports. And that could put that could be a bit of a spanner in the works of what I'm sure is a is a plan. Uh, that the government that the government are enacting now so maybe uh, maybe we might be protected by our parliamentary system although we haven't been so far um if that doesn't happen and then we start going down this road um yeah it's going to get it's going to get ugly i think because yeah, we are going to need yeah. we're going to need some kind of civil mass civil disobedience uh and uh, you know i don't i don't know what that would look like but i, I i'm sure if that happens then people would end up being arrested and um and serving serving time in prison maybe and you know all, all sorts of things like like in any other scenario in which there's been massive civil disobedience um these things do these things do happen we just have to hope and pray that the lord has mercy on our nation and and that either these things don't happen or that when when the civil disobedience does happen it will have a huge it will have a huge effect and people will, will rise up and, and turn against this this madness that we're living with currently. But it's crazy, isn't it, Danny, that we're even talking about this? I mean, yeah, it is. a year and a half ago, we couldn't have even imagined having such a conversation. So things have things have become just crazy, just crazy. Yeah. A year and a half ago or maybe two years ago, friend and I were talking, Harry, in that we felt that we were approaching what we termed as the point of acceleration. And we didn't really know what that was. but seem to be accelerating at a um, ridiculous rate. So sorry to, uh, I would say sorry to end on a bleak question there, but 
these are questions that must be answered at the moment. And, you know, I'm sorry for all my convoluted and naive questions throughout the podcast, but, you know, when I think of religious stuff, my mind just runs amok. It's, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. Thank you, Danny. You're very, very welcome. Would, would, would I be able to ask you just to finish the podcast to say a little prayer? Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. Cool. All right. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Danny. Thank you for this podcast. And we thank you for everyone who listens to it. We pray for your blessing to be upon everyone listening now, upon us. Your presence would be in us and would work through us. We pray especially for people who are tormented and afflicted uh, by dark powers or just by the, their own suffering or pain in their hearts that you O lord would grant them comfort and draw them close to you we pray for our nation as well that you would turn us back from the the madness and the the wickedness that we are running headlong into and that we would live in a in a free land uh, which is characterized by justice and, and truth and that we would see a revival of these things in our society very soon we pray you protect us from all evil and all harm through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for being on the podcast, Father Franklin, Jamie. I hope yeah. you'll come on again. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure, Danny. Thank you for having me on. Okay, cheers. Until next time. Good luck. God bless. God bless. Bye now. Bye.